The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. Dwight D. Eisenhower. That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Folks, welcome to this episode of Dad Bod History. I'm Jake. I'm Eric. And uh, no Nick tonight. He's he's busy working his day job. Um, But today we're (laughs) going to be talking about uh, famous amphibious assaults in history. Specifically... The biggest amphibious assaults in history, not just not just a couple of freewheeling Vikings attacking the coast of France, but um, oh, I, yeah, I didn't research any of those, and those had to I, be good, but they didn't leave any records. So best. no, <laughs> no, they burned everything that they found. Um, so we're going to talk about amphibious assaults in history, um, the largest ones, and kind of how they've changed over time. And uh, Eric, I don't know if you kind of want to go in chronological order, or if you just want to start with ones that have piqued your interest i have a couple and i I know you have a few and and we have one awesome one at the very end oh yeah oh yeah uh well why don't we start well okay so the first amphibious assault in recorded history is in 1200 bc and where was that that's that was at troy okay that was the battle of of troy Troy. so um you know one of the things that we talked about when doing this episode was the size of some of these amphibious assaults mm-hmm. uh, and really outside the 20th century, it's very difficult to find a lot of good information. I found a couple, um, obviously the siege of Troy, there's, you know, not a ton of records about it. I mean, we have the Iliad, um, that's kind of a legendary or mythological look at the, the story of Troy. Um, who, I mean, I can't remember off the top of my head who has some records on that, but, um, you know, the estimates from historians are 70,000 to 130,000. Now, what we know of the Battle of Troy and the Trojan War was that it was like a 10-year campaign in which the Achaeans and the Myrmidons crossed the Aegean and landed on the western shores of what is now Turkey, um, where Troy was, and laid siege to it. For 10 years, basically, from the beaches. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit different of an amphibious assault than we would consider, but it's it's uh, it's got the honorable mention here because it's well, the first they do, in history that we you know, know they of. do storm the beaches and and they do establish a beachhead as as we would think of one, and you know, and set up camp from there. Um, but it's just it just kind of stalled after that, um, and I think that's the difference is. Modern amphibious assaults are much quicker um, than that. But it is, like you said, it's kind of a good honorable mention um, because it's one of the first recorded instances of an amphibious assault um, that that we have to work with. And, well, I mean, we can... Chronological order basically works for most of these, I think. Okay. So that that would put you up. At Battle Marathon. Yeah, Marathon. So if we're staying in Greece and, and literally staying with the Aegean, um, Battle of Marathon w- would be the next amphibious assault in our list. And and this one was between the Persians, who were now 
uh, on the other side of the Aegean and ruled from, you know, from uh, what is modern day Iran to Egypt to Turkey and were invading Greece after the, there was an Ionian rebellion um, in some Greek colonies on the, on the other side of the Aegean in, near Persia. And so as a punitive measure, uh, King Darius was going to invade Greece with a force. And um, so he staged a, an amphibious assault or an attack. And before I get too much into the detail, I think the reason, if you're looking at it logistically speaking, and this matters with, with the Persians, is the fastest you could go in ancient Greece or ancient Persia was as fast as your horse could walk in a day. And when you're moving an army, that slows down even more because you have to tear down camp, you have to march, you have to take breaks, and you have to set up camp each night. And so it, to go a matter of a thousand miles, which I believe this trek would have been if they had tried to go by land, would have taken months and months and months. And they're also... Do. You know, Turkey is not a flat country. Mm -hmm. It's very mountainous. They're going to have to cross the Bosporus, the Dardanelles. Mm -hmm. um, and once they get to Greece, it's more of the same. Mountains. Yeah. And it's not like between Persia and Greece is a highway. I mean, <laughs> there's other countries that they have to march through and other countries theoretically that would oppose them. Um, and so unless they're going to go on a, a campaign of total conquest... Um, logistically doing an amphibious attack is the better option. Um, and so Darius commissions 300 ships uh, to set sail for mainland Greece. Uh, those ships were most likely Phoenician ships. He didn't actually have a navy of their own, but they conquered Phoenicia and, and just kind of took their navy. Well, and that's um, another aspect of the Persian military is that they were made up of a number of conquered peoples. Mm-hmm. Right, you had yeah. Egyptians, you had Syrians, Assyrians, um, whoever was living in Turkey, some of the, the Ionian Greeks, even the uh, Halicarnassus was allied yeah. with Persia. So, yeah, and one of the sources I read referred to the Persian army as a cosmopolitan army, and I think that's such a great way of putting it: is that they didn't, you know, they just kind of took what worked for each nation they conquered and, and just made it their own. Um, mm -hmm. So why build a navy if you can just go conquer a nation that has one? Um, why get these foot soldiers if this country that is one of your territories already has Yeah, them? and the Phoenicians were a seafaring people. They knew mm -hmm. the Mediterranean. They knew how to build ships. So just, mm -hmm. you know, we conquered you. We'll take your ships. Now, some, exactly. of the, some of the Persians were marching, right? They had marched to like places like Thermopylae. Yeah, but that was later. Right. So in this instance, and, and here's why I think that's interesting, is because in this first attack or first Greco-Persian war, the Persians sail across the Aegean in their 300 ships. And here's where you were saying it's kind of hard to pin down how many the forces were. I see some sources say 30,000 Persians, others say 90,000. You can probably split the difference and get close to what was real. Um but suffice it to say, it was a massive army coming across the Aegean Sea in these ships. Uh, the ships themselves were called triremes, which was rows or levels of different rows. And then they did have sails attached to them, but they were primarily powered by rowers. 
uh, going across the sea. Um, they brought a cavalry of approximately 2,000 horsemen uh, in these ships across as well. Um, but primarily they were fielded with infantry and archers. Uh, the strength of the Persian army lied in its archers and um, missile units. So they, they make way for, uh, for Greece and they decide to land in what we now know as the Bay of Marathon. Um, just because you have a bunch of boats doesn't mean you can land anywhere on the coast. I mean, the, 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 the conditions need to be right. It's not like just looking at a map and going, oh, you can land anywhere. Um, so they had to pick the Bay of Marathon to, to drop off their landing force, which is about 26 miles northeast of Athens. And, um, and then from there, they would continue their invasion of Greece and, and starting with Athens and then moving um, through Thebes and Sparta. So while they were, and here's, I guess, one thing that's of note is when they had their ships land, they were one of the first recorded forces to use gangways or runways to unload their ships. Before, people would just beach the ship and then jump off. In this case, they put runways from the ship to the land so horses could walk off and men could walk off and you can get the supplies off quicker, which I thought was, a, I guess, an interesting tactic to, to be developed uh, from if you go from Troy, where they just jumped off the ships and ran, to now... Yeah, the they, they just ran the ships into the sand, right? Yep. <clears throat> so it, that was one interesting tactic. And, and so then the Greeks, and here's, I guess, why amphibious assaults are difficult, is because you can see them coming. <laughs> like, it's the Greeks knew the Persians were coming. They had time to prepare. And even though the Greeks were very much outnumbered, at most 20,000 men, but more likely 10,000 uh, Spartan and Athenians, they could see the Persians coming, and so they had time to prepare the field of battle. And so they made sure that they were situated next to a marsh on one side. The Greeks chopped down a bunch of trees to cover their, their northeastern and southwestern flanks so that the Persian cavalry couldn't get around them. So they made a, a basically two barricades of felled trees, and then they positioned their men in between these natural and man-made barriers. And so I think that... That's kind of the crux, and I think if, if when we're looking at these next amphibious assaults that you're going to talk about, Eric, that kind of becomes a running theme, is that the defender always has the high ground, and the defender can always prepare. And so to, to win, you need to have overwhelming numerical superiority and great reconnaissance and good weather. really, really good strategic you need good weather. Uh, tactics. And weather, yeah. <laughs> And, uh, I mean, and so the the thing with the Persians is as they were getting ready, the Greeks were already ready and forced the Persians to come at them on the Greeks' terms. And the which battle... That, that's going to be different in future amphibious assaults. That's not going to be the case, especially in the 20th century, um, where the defender is picking the battle. It's not the case uh, mm -hmm. kind of as we go forward. Uh, it's interesting to note that 10, what, 10 years later, 30 years later, um, when the Persians come back and, and battle at Thermopylae, um, they're also going to lose part of their navy to a storm, mm -hmm. which is going to be, you know, one of the things with amphibious assaults. They are um, massively risky, but the payoff is, is immense. Um, yeah. Just because if you can um, win... 
your amphibious assault and gain a beachhead, um, you have just put uh, a force multiplier of pressure on your opponent by opening up a new front, a new battleground that in most cases you got to pick. Um, so yeah, yeah, I mean, so they assaulted at Marathon and, and it does end up being a failure for them. Yeah, the, the numbers are approximately 6,400 Persians died. Only 192 Greeks are recorded as being killed. Um, the numbers, who knows how accurate those are, but it whatever the actual number, it's an overwhelming Greek victory, even though they're outnumbered. And, and there are some other advantages the Greeks had. They had better armor. Their tactics were better. Their training was better. The Greeks kind of, especially with the Spartans, had a professional army. Whereas the Persians, a lot of them were conscripts and weren't lifetime warriors uh, like the Greeks had. So, so there's a lot of reasons that the Persians lost that battle. But what I think is interesting is when they invade again in 480 BC, they don't do an amphibious assault. Instead, they say, it's even though it's going to take us longer, we will march all the way around across the Bosphorus and then all the way around through Thrace, through Macedonia, through some of the other Greek city-states into mainland Greece. They say it's, and I don't know if that was a conscious decision between Xerxes, but it is telling that the Persians said, we're not going to do the amphibious assault this time. We'll, we'll risk marching. And they brought an army of, instead of 90,000 at the most, 300,000 Persians all the way around the coastline. And the Navy supported them all along that that trek, but it was not a, an amphibious assault that time. It was a, a land-based war. Yeah, that's a good... That, I mean, as far as an amphibious assault, that's a really interesting kind of initial one. Um, <clears throat> so I have a, a short, a small one um, that comes out of the 16th century, and this is during... I think like the 11th crusade or something. I mean, it, it's still considered the crusades because the Ottoman Turks are in the Mediterranean and they're wreaking havoc on European city states there and European holdings. And, um, they took the Island of Malta. So it's called the siege of Malta in 1565. And there were the, um, Knights, I believe who were in that, the, the Hospitler Order of Knights who were in Malta at the time, and they tried to defend it. And so the Spanish king basically started the Spanish Marines. Now, the Spanish Marines are the oldest currently existing Marine force in the world. And uh, basically, it took, he took 5,500 Spanish Marines, basically Navy infantry, and sailed them to Malta in order to attempt to retake it. And they were able to lift the siege. Uh, the interesting note here is Miguel de Cervantes, author of Don Quixote, was a Spanish Marine. Hmm. And so that's kind of one of the first modern, if you can say modern, um, amphibious assault. But again, that's kind of like that, Hemingway. Yeah. In a, in a weird way, Hemingway before Hemingway. Yeah, I mean, Miguel de Cervantes did not have a shotgun at his disposal <laughs> towards the end. Uh, but, you know, 
he and I get I suppose a lot of his experiences went into his writing. Mm-hmm. But those Marines, whether they landed in a in an actual amphibious assault that was in a, an attack, or they just landed on the island and were able to lift the siege, it's kind of it's unclear to me in my my research. But um, and the other one that was kind of early is the first uh, large scale amphibious assault by American forces, and this is a siege of Veracruz. So this is during the Mexican American War, mm-hmm. and. Um, it's pretty interesting. So this is in 1847 in March. And um, basically what has happened is there's the Army of Occupation. Uh, Major General Winfield Scott takes it over. Um, Zachary Taylor had had it. He hands it off to him. And Matthew C. Perry, um, not the one from Friends, the one from uh, meeting up with the Japanese in 1854. Uh, right? What's that? Commodore Perry. Yeah, he'll be Commodore Perry later on. Um, he's going to command the fleet. So Veracruz is on the eastern coast of Mexico. And they basically sail to Veracruz. They have these, um, they're basically, if they take Veracruz and they can march on Mexico City. So this, um, they have a Mosquito fleet, which is a fleet of small gunships. And they get these things 90 yards from the coast to kind of prepare support fire. And then the bigger ships roll in behind them. Hmm. And then they landed and they brought in 8,600 American soldiers um, on this beach that's three miles from Veracruz. Um, and this happens in the afternoon. Um, now I know as I've studied World War II, um, amphibious assaults are usually at 7 a.m. Like get up, eat some breakfast, hit the beach. So they land at 5 p.m. They end up Everyone's offloaded at 11 p.m. Not a shot is fired. And then they spend the next few days enveloping Veracruz. And then they besiege it. And that siege lasts until the end of March. And then Veracruz surrenders. But that's the first time that American soldiers have been placed onto ships. And in a large scale been offloaded onto a beach. Again, in this case, without much resistance. Okay, but it's still, it's interesting that, uh, that you can see some, I don't know, if modern coordination or logistics working out that they brought in smaller ships or smaller boats first to provide cover while the bigger boats offloaded, even though it went pretty well, now flawlessly. They, had, they use small boats for the yeah. offloading, but again, it's, you, know, you have a Navy-Army coordination which mm-hmm. is what, um, you know, I don't Later. know how, how coordinated things are during the revolution or the civil war, but this required. Well, I think that's an interesting point. And, you know, if we go back to Troy and Mar- Marathon and, and previous uh, amphibious assaults, is that navies, navies that were naval warfare, I guess, in classical times, was basically armies on the sea. Like it was just floating armies. Um, naval battles were not what we think of as a naval battle today. It was, all right, I'm going to ram my ship into yours and then we're going to jump on your ship and yeah. kill you all. <laughs> and so, that, and you know, this idea of like a true Navy fighting force, the Marines, was a, is a relatively new concept. I mean, if we go back to Spain as kind of the start of a modern Marine Corps, it was a new idea where like, no, you have a naval infantry that knows how to fight 
from ship to ship and knows how to storm beaches and knows how to like do these things is kind of a new concept. And in America, whether they intended to or not, in a lot of um, a lot of the the fights that they had in the 1800s were firsts of their kind uh, in the yeah. transition from medieval renaissance warfare to modern warfare and it, it looks like this based on what you're saying would be a first of its kind where you have the navy coordinating directly with the army instead of one just dominating um the situation so i think that's a really kind of telling development yeah um I, you know it's kind of interesting because the u.s marines have been a lot around since uh, and if any Marines listen to this, they're going to kill me. I think it's what November 10th, 1776. Like mm-hmm. they took the oath in a bar and they formed the first Marine Corps um, for the United States during the, the revolution. Uh, and what their, well, and their, and their hats their are indicative. The, on their, I don't know what you'd call their dress hat, but their their official hat. There's that knot on the top of the hat, and that's to indicate when you had Marines sitting up on the crow's nest, shooting down into the enemy ships, that you knew who was on your side uh, and who wasn't. And that's a now again, if there is a Marine listening, I'm, please feel free to fact check us. But I, I think it's kind of an interesting um, uh, tidbit of history um, on on why they. They're kind of special. They're separate from the army. They're not, the army does land wars and for the Marines don't. And for a while there, Marines are trying to be land occupying forces. And, uh, and now they're kind of getting back to their naval roots, which I think is a kind of a great thing. Yeah. It's uh it's, it's some interesting stuff. Um, I think, so those are some of the outside of the 20th century. And I think you have, you have the next one, right? From uh, yes, one. I do. The Gallip- Battle of Gallipoli, which I would call the first modern amphibious assault. You might be able to say the Spanish-American War and uh, the, the, store, you know, the Rough Riders and, and the invasion of Cuba possibly as a, as a modern version of this. But uh, the Battle of Gallipoli, which was in World War I, Again, we're in the Aegean Sea, uh, so it's kind of interesting how so much of this takes place in the Aegean. And again, we're in the the Bosphorus, or now called the Dardanelles. And Turkey, the Ottoman Empire, is on the side of Germany in World War One, and they've joined the Allies, or they've joined Germany and Austro-Hungarian Empire against Britain, France, and Russia. And the Britons and the French are had tried throughout early 1915 to assault Constantinople, now called Istanbul, up through the Dardanelles. But the problem is, is there was gun batteries all on either side of the coast, all along the coast, to shoot any ship, blow up any ship that would try to shoot the, the straits. And even if they avoided the gun batteries, there was mines all throughout the waters there. So it made getting to the Turkish capital very, very difficult. So the British, at the, at the urging of Lord Admiral Winston Churchill, who was Lord Admiral of the Navy at the time, and, uh, and the French, they said, well, we'll just do a landing. We'll land on 
the um, the Gallipoli Peninsula and we'll assault there, take the gun batteries out, and then we can clear the Dardanelles and send our navy up and or push our forces into Constantinople on land. And so the plan was was to do an assault on two main spots. The first one is called and let me make sure I have Cape Hellas, which is right at the tip of the peninsula of Gallipoli. And then the other one is what became known as Anzac Cove, uh, but it was closer to what is the location or city of Ari Burn. And the British and the French, mostly British, sent approximately 489,000 troops on this assault over the time that it happened at these two points. On Hellas Cove, they attacked five beaches, and at what now becomes Anzac Cove, they sent one force of primarily Australians and New Zealand New Zealanders from the Empire uh, to attack. And, and I think it's interesting, before I get too much into the tactics, is the, French, the British especially were leveraging their M imperial territories for World War I. And so the British forces... A lot of them weren't British. You had about 25,000 uh, or 50,000 Australians total in this assault, 15,000 New Zealanders. You had uh, thousands more from India. You had a bunch of Canadians uh, on this force. So there's very, not very few, but a huge contingent of this British force wasn't actually British. They were um, pulled from all these other territories that the British had control of at the time as part of their empire. And the French did the same thing, uh, pulling from their territories as well. So it, it was very, again, going back to what the Persians called it, a very cosmopolitan fighting force, if you look at the actual makeup of the British uh, army at this time. So with that, they assaulted the Ottomans. They landed on April 25th, 1915, they made initial beachheads at both Anzac Cove and Cape Hellas, and then it kind of stopped. Um, the Ottomans were able to bring their mobile gun batteries into position, were able to prevent them from achieving their objectives to get to the high ground, knock out the gun batteries, and then push on to Constantinople. And the British and the French, but mainly the British, just kept sending more men uh, looking at it like, well, if we just keep putting more people in, eventually we'll break through, which is a very World War One tactic. Yeah, um, yeah it was. Just, just keep feeding men in, into, the, into the front, and eventually we'll win. And in this case, they didn't. I mean, the battle, the battle, if you can call it that, lasted eight months. It lasted from April 25th, 1915 to January 6th, 1916, uh, which is just a perfect well, that, example of the typical. futility of World War One. That's very typical of World War One battles in that mm -hmm. since they are standoffs, they tend to just last forever, mm -hmm. months on end over a small point because neither side can really break through the other one. Yep. And, and in this case, I mean, the British and the French lost. They had to withdraw, and eventually they withdrew the remaining 105,000 soldiers that they had out and said, well, we'll send them to the, we'll send them to the front in Europe. We, we can't break through here against, against the, uh, the Ottomans and the Ottomans, while they had won, 
it was a it was a Punic victory. I mean, they lost two hundred fifty thousand men, two hundred fifty thousand men that could have been fighting Russia to the north, or could have been defending their other territories in North Africa or Syria. Uh, the British and French lost about 250,000 men, and nothing conclusive came of it. Nobody won yeah. decisively. And I think that was... It's very typical of that yeah. war. Um, yeah. And of course, I I want to say it's April 25th, is Anzac, Anzac Day. Day. Yep. Um, which celebrates that, I mean, commemorates that... that um, that battle because that's yeah. where Australians and New Zealanders uh, poured a lot, a lot of their blood out in World yeah. War One. And, and it's funny, and I think if if the Battle of Marathon was an object lesson for the Persians ten years later when they invaded via land, I think the Battle of Gallipoli is an object lesson for the British especially, but the Allies in general for World War II when we get to the invasion of Normandy. But the, the interesting thing is the, the British had a flyer, a pamphlet, pamphlet sent to the Anzac soldiers saying this about the Turkish, Turkish uh, soldiers was that um, they were, they basically assumed the Turkish were just going to lay down. They were just going to be like, eh, it's not even going to be a fight. It's going to be over so quickly, you won't even you won't even believe it. And they said the Turkish soldiers, as a rule, manifest their desire to surrender by holding their rifle butt upward and by waving clothes or rags of any color. An actual white flag should be regarded with the utmost suspicion as a Turkish soldier is unlikely to possess anything of that color. Like, that's that was their primer to their Australian and New Zealanders. Hey, they're going to surrender, but don't trust the white flags because that's they, they couldn't afford anything in actual white back then. <laughs> like, it was just such a, uh, a dismissive or superior view that they had of of the, the Ottomans. And I think they paid for it. They paid for it dearly with this kind of, well, we can just, we'll land, nobody's going to oppose us, and we can waltz our way to Constantinople. And yeah. eight months later and 250,000 men dead, they had to pull, they it had to pull away. still um, early in the war. I mean, you're still within the first 10 months of the war. They haven't figured out this doesn't work yet. Um, yeah, I... Um, yeah, that, that's considered one of the big disasters. And you mentioned that they kind of use that information to help with D-Day. They use that to help mm-hmm. with everything. Operation Torch, Operation Husky, Operation Dragoon. I mean, there's there's a half a dozen amphibious assaults that the Allies have to undertake in France, in North Africa, in Italy, in order to defeat the Axis powers. Um, and they've learned. They learned from each of those as well for the next one. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, it's just very. It, it. The more I read about Gallipoli, the more fascinated I was with it because it was such a. It was a. If it was, if there weren't so many dead, it was almost a comedy of errors. There was at one point where they did have a breakthrough and they made some advances, and they're like, "Well, what do we do now?" And we're like, "We don't know," and and <laughs> and that gave the Turkish, uh, the Ottomans, enough time to reinforce and and stop them and push them back, and it's like, and. World War One was so indicative of that because the technology and the tactics weren't matching up. And I think yeah. that in this case, it was the first modern naval assault, but it was the first modern naval assault and nobody knew what to do with it. They had all this technology. They had all this firepower. They had 
uh, all this swift mobility, for lack of a better term, but they didn't know what to do with it because they were still stuck in colonial war warfare and colonial tactics. Yeah. So yeah. I, I I don't know. I mean, it, it was a really good it was a really good one to look at, and I think it was a great lead up to when we get to to World War II and specifically when we get to D Day. Um, because if if Dardanelles and Gallipoli was how to do everything wrong, World War II they'd figured out here's how you do it right. And if if you want to take it from there, Eric, I think uh, this yeah, would be a I great mean, time. so there, like I feel like I'm a, I can jump around, um, but if we have one big thing that we're getting to at the end, um, so I looked at. And we look at the list of like the five largest amphibious assaults in history. First of all, technically, we're looking at it's a seaborne invasion, which means you can't. It's more than just the initial assault, um, which makes it tricky because uh, take something like. Okay, so if I take a look at this next one, which is um, Operation Cherry Blossom. In uh, the 1st through the 3rd of November, 1943, which is the Marine assault at Cape Torquina on Bougainville. Bougainville is an island in the Solomons. Um, it's part of Papua New Guinea, and it was held by the Japanese. And so the objective here was to take Bougainville. Now, Bougainville is an island. It's shaped like a violin, I guess. Or Yeah, that's kind of how they said it. Uh, and it's a big island. It's 3,500 square miles. So if we compare that to like um, Iwo Jima, it's eight square miles. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows about Iwo Jima. It's eight square miles. Bougainville is 3,500. Um, even Okinawa is 66 square miles. So these are small islands. Bougainville is a big one. Bougainville is not completely taken by the Allies, the Americans and the British, until, and I think the Australians are involved too, until the war ends in 1945. Hmm. So we're there for almost two years. But the initial assault, which lasted two days, um, basically they want to take Bougainville. If they take Bougainville, then they can attack and uh, surround Rabaul, which is in New Britain, which is an island to the west. And if they can take Rabaul, that's a Japanese stronghold. So they prepare, they begin preparing in August to take uh, Bougainville and they spend these three months preparing they're doing reconnaissance they've got guys landing on the beaches uh, doing hydrology and like checking on the sand and talking to locals and then leaving you know they're coming up on little boats uh, <clears throat> and then in the, in the days and weeks leading up to 3200 sorties by air um, along with you know naval superiority comes in they start they start hitting the airfields there there's like eight or nine airfields on Bougainville that they're going to want to take. And so they, they prepare all this. Um, they even have a group of paramarines, which I didn't know existed. So a group of Marines who are trained also to parachute, right? Yeah. And they drop them on an island, and they assault this island that's to the southeast of Bougainville. And the Japanese transfer like 10,000... Uh, that's the wrong number. They transfer several thousand soldiers to this other island... Uh, what was the island called? Uh, Chosul. And it draws attention away from Bougainville. 
So, you know, one of the tactics, like I said, in naval, in these kind of amphibious assaults is one, you get to pick your target. As long as you know the terrain, you get to pick the beach. And if we're talking about Bougainville, we're talking about hundreds of miles of beach to choose from. And the Japanese have to say, well, we don't know where they're coming from. You have two options. You can spread yourselves out or you can fall back. Um, but the Marines get to pick their spot. And they pick this spot in the southwest. It's called Cape Torakina. And the 3rd Marine Division are the ones who are going to assault. It's going to be uh, 14,000 Marines are going to assault this um, this Cape Torakina on the first day of the war. Now, what's interesting about the 3rd Marine Division is they've been training for 21 months. Um, this is the 3rd Marine Division's first action in the war. And so they, they assault these beaches. It was like uh, 8,000 yards of beach. You've got the 3rd Marine Regiment, the 9th Marine Regiment, the 2nd Marine Raiders. They're taking these beaches, and they're also taking a couple islands, small islands off the coast. So basically, they secure these beachheads by 11 a.m., almost completely. And by nightfall, they basically got that area locked down. But they're going to be there for another two years. Now, the 3rd Marines will move out. Other groups will come in. Um, but there's a really interesting story that I came across of a, uh, I think, a Sergeant Robert A. Owens in the Marines. And he, uh, <clears throat> part of their, his Marine group gets pinned down um, by this gun. And it's a 75 millimeter um, vehicle gun. So it's, it's, a, it's kind of hard to explain. I'll see if we can throw a picture up. Um, it's a wheeled um, field artillery gun, 75 millimeters. And it's taken out four landing craft so far. But the way it's positioned is they can't get to its sides and they can't get close enough to throw anything like grenades or anything. They have to go at it from the front. So that's what they do. Robert A. Owens, he grabs a couple guys, says, come with me, you stand there, and he assaults this gun from the front, sprays it with gunfire, jumps in there, and sends all the, 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 the garrison guys there out the back door where his four Marines gun them all down and he's also killed as he exits the back and as they they found it they found the gun was was loaded ready to fire again um and this one gun was holding them down so he goes in he ends up dying on this first day of battle and of course a lot of guys did he earns a medal of honor for this but to imagine training for 21 months to end up pinned down and your training takes over and you end up you know, dying on the first day of this battle. Um, and so as the Battle of Bougainville goes on, they, they you know, they, they push themselves in, they, they take parts of it, the Japanese counterattack throughout time, but, um, you know, they, they land at 7 a.m., they hit those beaches after a night full of naval gunfire, an hour and a half or whatever beforehand, uh, and they land on those beaches and then they're fighting through the jungles. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's just, that was an interesting one. Um, one that I didn't know a whole lot about. One and with the whole Pacific campaign in world war two, wasn't MacArthur's saying is hit them where they ain't like what you said was the Marines could pick their spot right on the beaches and, and the Island hopping doctrine, I guess that MacArthur had was basically that. 
don't don't do what the British and the French did in, in Gallipoli and just go where they're strongest and try to force your way through. But but uh, like the Greeks did in, in Marathon, is you can create the battlefield. You can suit it to your advantages. And it looks like as the Marines did this and as the Navy did this, that's how they kind of prosecuted the war is let's not go to where the Japanese are strongest because it's going to be way too costly for us. Let's go... Let's yeah. put them in a position where they have to react to us. And I think that was a, a development that people had learned from, from the errors of World War I, land and sea. Yeah, and, and if you have air superiority and, you know, the objective of the island Hopkins, really, we've got to get these airfields. We've got to um, dominate the skies over the Pacific so that we can then take the fight right to Japan. And, and that, this was mm-hmm. a step along the way. Yeah. Uh, the next battle, and I was kind of going not chronologically, but in size of force, um, is the Battle of Inchon, which is actually a Korean War battle. Um, and I, you know, the Korean War is not something that I've spent a lot of time studying, but it's interesting because when the war started in, in 1950, uh, basically the North Koreans, supported by the Chinese, pushed themselves in three months from June to September all the way down the Korean Peninsula to the Pusan uh, perimeter, which is like this small pocket in the southeast corner of the Korean Peninsula. And that was held by the UN and US and the South Korean forces. And so on the 15th of September, or the 10th through the 19th, but 15th was the day of the landing, um, the, the Marines... In this case, it was the 1st Marine Division and the 7th Marine Division landed in Chan. Now, in Chan is west of Seoul. And if you know where Seoul is, Seoul is near the border between North and South Korea. So their amphibious assault hit in the middle of what the, the North Koreans and Chinese were currently holding. And if you if you ever get a chance to look at a, like a time-lapse map of the Korean War, um, they're, they're in this pocket down in South Korea... And then within a couple months, the Allies, that's the UN and United States and South Koreans, after this amphibious assault, pushed themselves all the way to the border with China. And that's where MacArthur, you know, threw out the idea of saying, well, uh, keep going. Why, don't we, why don't we keep going, maybe toss a couple of nukes over the border? Because <laughs> uh, yeah. they had the, by this time they had a, atomic artillery so they're putting atomic bombs into howitzers which sounds that's like a horrifying. terrible idea that's terrifying and i know there's videos of of them shooting these things and watching them detonate you know several miles away i'm like that's a bad idea but that's what macarthur wanted to do um this was about the time that he and truman were getting a little bit um having troubles between themselves um they're having a power well, struggle. Isn't that interesting, though? It went from the North Koreans winning everything except the most southern part of the peninsula to, in a few short months, the U.S. and their allies pushing all the way to the border of China. Yeah. And how different, and, in both circumstances, how different would this world have been if it was an entirely united communist korea or an entirely united democratic korea it would have been a very 
I mean, obviously the peninsula would have been very different, but it would have been very different for the region in the world. Had yeah, I mean, one of those so two had not happened. The way the war started is, is, you know, the South was in no way prepared for any incursion South. And so the Chinese and North Koreans just have you know, no trouble until they get to Pasan. And then they're held by the UN and U.S. forces there. And then they're not really prepared for a counterattack. They think they're on the offensive. And then suddenly they're on the defensive. And they're pushed all the way back. And then there's a counterattack. And then it kind of stabilizes. You know, we're now at the 38th parallel. It kind of stabilizes in that region over the next mm-hmm. few years. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, some of the other... Um, amphibious assaults that come up and and it's difficult to just get stuck on on any it, it would be easy to get stuck on anyone so there's a couple short things because i was kind of going by size so the battle of iwo jima required 110,000 marines mm-hmm. and we know iwo jima from four square mile island yeah from that picture, right, um, mm-hmm. raising that flag, um, <clears throat> you know, one of those islands that just was absolutely um, devastating to take. It was it was a it was a tough battle for a small piece of land. Um, you know, one of the interesting stories that comes out of this is um, John Bassalone, and uh, if you've seen the Pacific. You probably know John Bassalone. John Bassalone was a gunnery sergeant with the Marines. He won the Medal of Honor at Guadalcanal. And um, at Guadalcanal, he, like, took out this, you know, actually, uh, Guadalcanal, no, I'm thinking of Iwo Jima. So he wins the Medal of Honor at Guadalcanal, gets to go home, and then kind of re-ups. And he's like, you know, I know I got to do this. I I finished up, but I want to go back. And Iwo Jima is a battle um, fought in February and March of 1945. Um, So he ends up going back to Iwo Jima, or he goes to Iwo Jima with the 1st Marines, and um, he earns a Navy Cross. But he also dies at Iwo Jima. So he he takes out a blockhouse uh, single-handedly of Japanese with like a machine gun emplacement. He destroys it all by himself. He's got some grenades and like an explo- uh, some some detonation explosives, and he takes out a blockhouse. And then he helps escort a tank across this air or to get to this airfield while taking all this mortar fire and heavy fire. <clears throat> and uh, then while he's beside this airfield, he gets killed um, with by shrapnel. Um, mm-hmm. But it's just such an interesting story. He was one of these guys who's just like, no, no, I'm going to go do this um, even if, you know, it's just my duty to do this. He had every right to not go back. Um, but he, he you know, um, I mean, so here I'll read his uh, citation for his Medal of Honor. Uh, for extraordinary heroism and conspicuous gallantry in action against enemy Japanese forces above and beyond the call of duty while serving with the 1st Battalion, 7th Marines, 1st Marine Division in the in the Lunga area, Guadalcanal, Solomon Islands on 24th and 25th October 1942. 
While the enemy was hammering at the Marines' defensive position, Sergeant Bassalone, in charge of two sections of heavy machine guns, fought valiantly to check the savage and determined assault. In a fierce frontal attack with the Japanese blasting his guns with grenades and mortar fire, one of Sergeant Bassalone's sections with its gun crews was put out of action, leaving only two men able to carry on. Moving an extra gun into position, he placed it in action, then, under continual fire, repaired another and personally manned it, gallantly holding his line until replacements arrived. A little later, with ammunition critically low and the supply lines cut off, Sergeant Bassalone, at great risk of his life and in the face of continued enemy attack, battled his way through hostile lines with urgently needed shells for his gunners, thereby contributing in large measure to the virtual annihilation of a Japanese regiment. His great personal valor and courageous initiative were in keeping with the highest traditions of the U.S. Naval Service. Franklin D. Roosevelt. Hmm. Um, so he's one of these one-of-a-kind guys. Just did what was necessary. Um, and, uh, you know, there's there's a couple others here. And I'm, I'm going to go size-wise before we get to our, our big one. Um, is Operation Dragoon. The 142,000 soldiers, which does not include 9,000 paratroopers. So Operation Dragoon um, is the invasion of southern France following D-Day. And it's not talked about a great deal because, you know, we had already made our landfall in Europe. Um, But it was almost as large, about 1,000 soldiers fewer than what was used at D-Day in Normandy. Uh, And then another large one, Operation Husky, which I believe this is the largest amphibious assault um, in history, is Operation Husky. Now, this is the invasion of Sicily, and it's 150,000 soldiers along 105 miles of beach, which is huge. It's a huge area to be assaulting. Um, But there's so little resistance the Italians had pulled back knowing that actually the Italians had pulled back thinking there's no way they're going to invade with the weather as it is. Hmm. So they pulled back and weren't worried about it. So they got their beachheads and eventually took Sicily. Um, and then, you know, the last one before the big one is, uh, the battle of Okinawa. Now I don't know what the initial assault force was, but all told it would require 180, 83,000 combat troops. Um, and what I, you know, I had always assumed that the entire Pacific was basically the Marines, but this included both the Marine Division and an Army Division at Okinawa, um, well, several Army Divisions, including the 77th, which is uh, Desmond Doss's division. Uh, if you've seen Hacksaw Ridge, mm-hmm. he's the uh, conscientious objector who refuses to carry a rifle, but wants to serve as a medic. So, um He'll serve at Okinawa um, in that battle, which is um, a few months after Iwo Jima. Yeah, yeah, those are uh, those are some big numbers. I mean, trying to coordinate anything from, and maybe this is another thing. It wasn't just amphibious, like you said. There was paratroopers, there was paramarines, and so you're coordinating land, sea, and air. Yeah, All yeah. on the same day, you have to make sure the weather <laughs> works out in your favor. You have to make sure you've done massive reconnaissance. You have to soften up the landing area uh, through bombardment via plane or from the battleships. And still, it's not a sure thing that you're going to be able to establish that beachhead. 
And, and so the tried and true method is make sure you bring a whole lot of soldiers uh, to that invasion. I mean, those are massive numbers to, I think the whole invasion of Iraq uh, in 2003 was what, 140,000 soldiers? Something. Something. I mean, it was, it was, I mean, which is a big army, but they were, they were bringing in an Iraq sized army to five different landings all at the same time, all across Europe and the Pacific. I mean, that's, that's a massive, massive effort. Yeah. Yeah. Multiple landings. So, yeah, I mean, we're coming up on D-Day here, June 6th. And so with that being the theme, you know, want to take a little bit, look at uh, D-Day today. Um, the risk and the rewards of amphibious assaults are just, they're massive. And, you know, the Germans had planned an amphibious assault on England called Operation Sea Lion that they never got off the ground because they couldn't defeat the, the, uh, the Royal Air Force. Um, but D-Day, with all the lessons we had had from previous battles, from Gallipoli, from... Um, operations in North Africa. Uh, D-Day is one of these, you know, I've always enjoyed studying it. There's so many great stories here, but simply the task of um, you have to coordinate, yes, your bombers, your fighters, your Navy, your armies, which are going to be American, British, and Canadian armies across five beaches, um, along with paratrooping forces. So, there's all this coordination and, you know, to think, um, initially June 5th was the day and that got scrapped because the night of June 4th, there was cloud cover. If they had cloud cover, they couldn't, um, do the aerial assault the night before with dropping bombs or with the paratroopers. So they said, we're going to scratch it tonight. And thankfully the next night they were able to do it. Had that not happened, they could have pushed back to June 7th, but after June 7th, between, uh, you know, the moon and the tides, they were going to have to wait until July, early to mid-July, which would be, you know, can you wait a month? Yeah, you can wait a month. I mean, you want to do it right. Uh, but that brings in a lot of other questions in terms of how far do we let the Soviets push the Germans back before we get a foothold? Um, the Soviets want us creating a foothold over there to take some pressure off them. So there's, there's so many questions there, but, um, the coordination you have like the 29th infantry division, you've got the first infantry division, the fourth infantry division, um, all landing. You've got the second Rangers, 82nd airborne, 101st airborne. Then you have these British and Canadian troops landing at their beaches. Um, all with this massive coordination and the biggest screw up was simply that, they, they missed their targets at Omaha and didn't take out the defenses there. And the Germans, um, you know, we're talking basically 150,000 soldiers involved in the Allied invasion. Now, to keep in mind, so Operation Overlord is the plan to invade Normandy and push into France and take Paris. Operation Overlord lasts from June 6th till about August 25th. Operation Neptune is the actual landings. That's the, the actual assault plan, um, which is June 6th. It's just that first day. Here's our targets for the day. Here's the towns we want to capture. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, at Utah Beach and Sword and Juno and Gold Beaches, well, and, they took their targets and, at Omaha. They were just held up. Yeah, and I think what you're describing is the from Neptune to Overlord is the transition from amphibious assault and back into conventional right. land warfare. Get get your beachhead. Mm-hmm. Now that we've got the beaches, now that we've got the uh, the Mulberry um, docks that we can bring the big ships up to and get the tanks offloaded, we can start to bring everything else and actually push in. Um, you know, and, and the story of D-Day is filled with all these little, these kind of screw-ups, right? So, you know, the at Omaha, a lot of the ships missed their targets. They were they were landing in the wrong beaches. Soldiers coming off their ships, you know, after getting shot at and finally figuring out, trying to figure out where they were, didn't know where they were. They had landed, you know, too far to the right. They were on the wrong side of this group. Um, the 82nd, 101st Airborne, those guys got dropped all over the place. They missed their targets. Mm-hmm. So they were just like, well, let's find some guys, go raise some hell and and make trouble for the Germans. All the way over to the um, east uh, was the British Paratrooper Division. I'm not sure the name of the division, um, but they were basically the they were the left flank of the whole thing. Uh, their story is told uh, in the book Pegasus Bridge by uh, Stephen Ambrose, and they basically had to take a, a pair of bridges uh, overnight, and they did so and hold them against what they assumed would be a Panzer Division. Um, and they managed to hold those bridges until they could be be um, reinforced. And that was the first Allied casualty on D-Day, which was uh, Denny Bretheridge uh, at Pegasus Bridge. You know, everything that stood between the beach landings and the rest of Germany and all of their forces was at Pegasus Bridge. Well, and, and what, it's funny because what you're describing with all these little screw-ups um, is, especially in World War II, is kind of what is kind of where America shined as a military. The decentralized command. Well, yeah, we're like, well, we missed our landing spot. Okay, well, we still know who to get, and we still know what the objective is, so let's go. Let's figure yeah. it out. And I think that is that was the uniqueness of the American military, was that the the small groups were able to figure out. We know what our objectives are. Yeah, Captain isn't Cap isn't here. But we'll figure it out, and, and we'll still achieve achieve our goals or something close to it. Um, whereas, when they talk about the German army, was kind of the opposite. The German army is wildly well trained, had a great command structure. But if you got rid of the officers, the noncoms and the, and the regular line soldier was kind of like, well, what do we do? I, Someone needs they, to they, tell me what to do. Yeah, they weren't able to just improvise, and and so. And you look at these other assaults that did or did not go so well, like Gallipoli. Um, part of it was they were kind of still stuck in that old world military style where you take your orders from your officers. You don't do anything unless the officer says so. And and the Americans and, and the British and, and the whole world changed their tactics as, as this war happened. But it had it been, had it been the Germans invading like let's say they did proceed with the the invasion of england and their commanders were getting pegged off or they didn't get their landing spots right who knows if it would have been as successful uh, just because of the the nature of the two militaries yeah you know it's um field marshal erwin rommel was put in charge of the defense of france um and he did a spectacular job of trying to 
put in the fixed fortifications that he did. But he also requested a few things. He's like, you know, give me give me these panzer divisions that I can put here, here, and here. I want them at a moment's notice. And and the problem with the German structure is Adolf Hitler said, no, I'm going to hold on to these. I don't want these to get lost um, on a beach somewhere. I want these in reserve for us to attack the enemy. And, and Rommel, uh, you know, Rommel for, for all his, uh, his, the great ability and skill he had just was not able to convince Hitler and some of the, his, his, uh, you know, ranking officers, this is what needs to happen. And so there was a delay when the allies invaded, you know, they didn't, you know, when, when the Germans woke up that morning, uh, and looked out there and they, you know, one of the stories is they reported to, uh, their officers, they said, Hey, there's, there's ships out here. And somebody asked, well, how many? He said, all of them, you know, yeah. so they, those ships were off the coast of England. They sail overnight, get themselves parked in the dark and put all the ships out at 6am. And, you know, the Germans wake up and they're saying, well, you know, they, they did not have the ability that the Greeks did to see the Persians coming. And mm-hmm. so uh, the Germans were kind of at a disadvantage. And they were also spread out across several hundred miles of coastline. Well, and weren't they also worried about an, another force uh, landing? Oh, yeah. They, they, down they, the were, coast? They, were, they were all over the coast. They were but, looking uh, further east. They were worried about Denmark. Um, they had to consider possibly that the Allies might invade Norway, not the best option. They had to look south, too. I mean, Patton had done his uh, his due diligence with their, their phony army in the south, uh, convincing what, the Germans that we might invade in the south, which we did. What is phony army? Because it's such a great story. Because totally, the, the Germans were so afraid of Patton, probably Rommel specifically, because him and those two had been going at it since North Africa, correct? Yeah, I mean, they, so they, they had... Yeah. So they were they were worried about Patton invading, and... Patton, being Patton, would have jumped at the opportunity. And so the Allies, and, and this is what you said in that um, the the battle in the Pacific is the Allies attacked the small island and it forced the Japanese to divert to that small island so that they could make their main assault. And the same thing is they had Patton set up an inflatable army and there's literally photos of inflatable tanks Right. So that if there was aerial reconnaissance, you would see an, an army full of artillery positioning at a different location to leave England and attack the coast. And so you can and there's photos of of soldiers lifting up these inflatable tanks. And yeah. it's, it's just a really funny image. And they did that to to force Rommel to spread his forces out because they're like, well, he's either going to they're either going to come here or they're going to come here. So where do we come? And so that allowed that forced the Germans to spread out their their limited resources, which made the actual assault uh, on Normandy uh, more feasible. I'm not going to say it was easy, yeah. but definitely more more feasible. I mean, because the, the, the Germans Allies, had to, they got to pick their target. Now, yep. their targets were limited by other things that they wanted, such as we want a deep harb, we want a deep water port that'll be Cherbourg. We, but Cherbourg is going to be taken. It's going to take weeks to get to Cherbourg. But we just need that sometime soon. Maybe you can go over to Le Havre or, or some of these other places. But, um, you know, 
some are like, well, if we strike closer to Germany, then we can end the war sooner. But then you put yourself in a position where you have to defend more places. So, um, you know, one of the interesting things about the whole Normandy invasion is they relied on tourism. So one of the things that they did in the years leading up as they planned, they said, we need photos of the, the French coast. And they got so many photos from British citizens of the coast that they're actually able to piece together the entire coast of France in photographs. Like, just put them next to each other. They couldn't just use Google Street View? No. Uh, <laughs> so. Google Street View had not... They just gotten maps up, I think, in 43. Okay. So that no Street sense. View. And the other thing that they had no idea about, they had no idea that there... They had all these British people who had been to France. They didn't understand that Normandy was filled with hedgerows. Now, they saw in the, the aerial photographs that there were these tree lines. They didn't realize that those tree lines were actually like these embankments with trees in them. And what that did is that they're like, oh, we can just land anywhere. We'll just drive through. It's like, no, you can't. Your, your tanks are going to hit these embankments and they're going to go up. They're going to expose their belly and then they're going to get stuck on a tree. So it And they just didn't realize they had all this information, but they still missed a few things. Mm-hmm. So... Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a crazy progression. And, you know, with the, when you were talking about the battle of Vera Cruz and they had these smaller ships bringing, uh, people and supplies onto the coast. And when they have marathon with the Persians and they're landing in their gangways to, to let people get off. And then with, with this battle specifically, they had the ducks, which were the semi aquatic vehicles that could, yeah go from the sea and drive up onto the land and then dump the soldiers and allow them to storm with some sort of protection uh, so that they could get up on the beach. So it's just a, it's just kind of an interesting progression, and you can clearly see the lessons learned between Gallipoli and, I would say, all of the Pacific theater, but definitely with Normandy as well. It's just so you can kind of see this, I guess, evolution or development over time. We're like, well, this didn't work. So we're not going to do that again, but we'll try this. And we need to make sure that we coordinate with this so that this happens. And it's just kind of a, a fascinating look at how much has changed, and especially in the last century, how much it changed and how quickly it changed. Yeah, I mean, the, the again, the risk-reward, you know, to, to pull off D-Day, um, the reward you can get by doing that, and again, come with overwhelming force, um, is you get to open up another front. You get to put so much pressure on the Germans, but the the risk, I mean, had it failed, uh, maybe you can still beat the Germans, but you're adding two more years to this. Um, yeah, because it allows them to consolidate their forces against Russia. Which... Yeah. So, I mean, you know, Eisenhower had prepared a failure message um, it was very short. Uh, but I think to finish, I want to read his, uh, the letter he wrote to um, basically his, his final memo before everyone set off. Um, so Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force. Soldiers, sailors, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the Great Crusade, toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brother-in-arms on other fronts, 
you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of the Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940-41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man-to-man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. Dwight D. Eisenhower. That's awesome. Yeah, that, that's awesome. All right, well, uh, that wraps up this episode of Dad Bought History. Uh, thanks for joining us, guys, and uh, look forward to, to seeing you all next week. Uh, feel free to follow us on YouTube and Spotify. Are we also now on Google? Uh, last I checked, not yet, but but we were able to to push on that. So we'll, we'll a few weeks maybe. Right. We'll follow us on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and soon coming to you at Google Play. Yeah, we'll have some short What If episodes here and there as well. Thank you. Have a great night. Have a good one.